0: If you have your Bible this morning, uh, please turn to Mark chapter 8 beginning in verse 22 uh, this morning. Uh, the last couple of weeks we have been in a series called DMs or uh, direct messages looking at the interactions between Jesus and his closest followers. And we've made the distinction this last couple of weeks now that uh, we've been looking at three kind of primary groups with whom uh, uh, that Jesus socialized with Uh, throughout the gospels we've talked about uh, the crowds and how uh, they loved jesus they were impressed with jesus but ultimately they didn't buy into jesus to them jesus is uh, an engaging figure to be sure but not much else to the religious leaders the other group that jesus often socialized or interacted with uh, they didn't love jesus like the crowds in fact they hated jesus Uh, and while often they couldn't refute him uh, they conspired to kill him instead. And so to them Jesus was a public menace. And to this last group we looked at and we focused in on this series, uh, we've seen Jesus interactions with the disciples, these 12 men that he calls uh, to devote themselves to Jesus, these 12 men who have chosen to center their lives around Jesus. And Jesus to them communicates the great truths of the kingdom of heaven. And so looking at these three groups, if we've seen, uh, the crowds who looked at Jesus as an inspiring figure and to the religious leaders who looked at him as a public menace. How did the disciples look at Jesus? How did they understand him? What did they think of him and understand his mission to be? And so this morning as we reach Mark chapter 8, Jesus is now uh, in the final year of his ministry. And he needs to make certain uh, that these disciples, these ones who will be carry on, carrying on his mission after him will know who he is, are absolutely sure of, of why he came. And so the direct message to them and to us this morning is Jesus' message, know me. Know me, understand me, know why I have come, know who I am. And I know this really kind of seems like an unnecessary sermon for many of us. I mean, of course, we know Jesus. Some of you who are older have probably been Christians longer than I have been al- alive. And so you know Jesus. You sing to Him, and you pray to Him, and you read about Him, and you study Him, and you follow Him. What's not to know? But sometimes it can be hard to kind of filter through the caricatures of Jesus to find the real Jesus. There's some pretty weird Jesuses out there. Actually, I did a quick uh, Google search this week and and found some uh, unique Jesus products, and all of these are absolutely real. You could go out and buy these today if you wanted to, but I wanted to present them to you. Uh, first, there's Bobblehead Jesus, or as my son so will say, Wobblehead Jesus, and I guess that's one way to make sure that Jesus is always giving you the yes if you want it. Uh, there are actually uh, pencil topper Jesuses, teachers. These might be a, a good incentive to stop cheating in your classroom. You know, Jesus is, is always watching Uh, There's Jesus bandages out there, I guess, in case the great physician needs a helping hand every now and then. Uh, My favorite, though, is the Jesus car air freshener. And I'm not really sure what Jesus smelled like, but I'm not sure I want my car smelling like Jesus. Maybe these have like a pine scent to them. But my favorite part about these is that on the two-pack, one says, it smells like heaven in here. And the other says, do you want me to take the wheel? Ugh church, we've got to do better than this in our marketing. But but there are some odd depictions of Jesus out there. And so the thing that we want to ask this morning is, who is Jesus really? I mean, do we really understand him? Do we really know why he came? Up until this point, Jesus has firmly established himself as a powerful miracle worker, as an authoritative teacher, as a restorative healer, But all of these are just subsets of his greater identity. And so the question this morning that Jesus is posing to these group of followers that have chosen to devote their lives to him is, do you get it? Do do the disciples understand what it means for Jesus really to be the Messiah? And here's why that matters for us. I know on this side of the cross, we have a greater understanding perhaps of Jesus' mission and ministry than they did in this moment where Jesus asks. But understanding who Jesus is leads us to understand who we are to be as his followers. Understanding what Jesus intends to do as the Messiah leads us to understand what is required of us as his disciples. This morning as we approach Mark chapter 8, I wanted to give you a bit of context leading into this chapter. Jesus has just performed an amazing miracle. He's fed 4,000 people with just seven loaves of bread. This is not the feeding of the 5,000. That's a different one. Jesus, on multiple occasions, fed great multitudes of people. And so following this feeding of 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, Look, clearly you're doing something here. Clearly you are a a man of God. But tell us plainly, give us a sign that you are who you say you are. And if I were Jesus in this moment, I would be like, give you a sign I mean, I just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. What greater sign do you need? But of course, to a hard and doubting heart, no proof is ever enough. And so Jesus, in one of those interactions with his disciples as he is uh, on the boat with them, says to them, just as they are interacting together, he says, Be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. He says, you know, be careful of that kind of thinking that, that permeates your entire thought process, this sign chasing or this proof, uh, this power proofing, be careful of that kind of thinking because just like yeast will work its way through the whole batch of bread, that kind of thinking will pollute your mission, will pollute your understanding of who I am. Well, the disciples miss this completely and they say, all right, you know, Jesus is saying, you know, watch out for the yeast because we forgot to bring any bread on our trip. And and Jesus is like, uh, do you really think that bread is a problem for me? And I had just fed thousands of people with seven loaves. There were seven baskets left over. Bread is not the issue. And so Jesus realizes that he has to open their eyes to who he truly is. And I choose that phrase, open your eyes, very specifically this morning because in Mark chapter 8, we see this miracle that Jesus performs uh, that really corresponds with the message that he's trying to teach. Jesus begins with this very specific miracle in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. It says, "'They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, "'Do you see anything?' He looked up and said, "'I see people. They look like trees walking around.'" Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Now we, throughout the Gospels, see Jesus perform all kinds of miracles. You know, from, from fevers to rising, to raising people from the dead, Jesus has done all of these things. And even when it comes to curing blindness, Jesus has done that also already in the Gospel. Blindness was a, a common problem, but yet this miracle is unique, because as far as we know, in all of the recordings of Jesus' miracles, this is the only kind of two-step miracle that Jesus ever performed. It's the only time that Jesus required two touches to heal a person, and, and kind of like wonder why this is. Like you know, Jesus touched him the first time, and maybe this the power like pfft, it didn't didn't quite connect, and so he has to to hit him again. And I, I don't think that's probably the case. Others have speculated that maybe this is a faith issue. In his gospel, Mark often emphasizes faith as a prerequisite to healing. That before Jesus will perform a work on people, they must believe that he can. And so maybe these two touches, the first uh, gives this man enough trust, enough faith, that he can be fully healed. Others have speculated that this is a, a medical issue. That often, even today, in modern day, when people's eyes are healed or temporary blindness uh, is, is restored, Is temporary sight, sight is restored after temporary blindness, uh, a reprogramming of the brain has to take place. There's kind of this crisscrossing matrix that the brain has to interpret over the period of months, and so maybe this miracle is first Jesus restoring a sight, and second doing that brain reprogramming. But I think even more uh, pertinent than those, another reason would be that Jesus is performing this miracle as kind of a real-life parable. That Jesus is working one of his stories played out on the stage of life. You see, Jesus giving this blind man sight required a second touch. And giving the disciples insight into who he is, his identity, will likewise require a second touch. We see Jesus touch the disciples' eyes the first time in verse 27. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Like I said, Jesus' time on earth is kind of nearing an end. His mission is is wrapping up. His conflict with the Jewish leaders is getting increasingly worse, and his pronouncement of the kingdom will eventually bring him into the crosshairs of the Roman Empire. And so it's imperative that his disciples, the men who are left to carry on his mission, those who will be his ambassadors, understand just what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom he came to bring. And so as Jesus asks this question, who do you say that I am, It's kind of interesting. Like Jesus, I mean, do you not really know what people are saying? You seem to always know what people are saying about you. You have some kind of identity crisis. And since when does Jesus really even care what people think about him? But I think as Jesus asked this question, he's asking not to get an answer, but rather to get a response. The the difference between the answer and the response is often uh, what you see in an elementary classroom. I've been uh, blessed on a number of occasions to be Uh, In the room where my wife teaches over the years, and especially when she taught first grade, she would say things like, okay, class, how many of you can take your ruler and find something that is one centimeter in the room? And of course, my wife, being a teacher and a college graduate, I hope would be able to find something and take a ruler and find out what in her room is one centimeter. But of course, the question is not so that she might have the answer, but rather have a response so that learning will take place, so that revelation will occur. And so as Jesus asks this question, who do people say that I am? He's looking for a response to to gauge where the disciples are in their understanding of his identity. Jesus' reputation as a healer and a teacher and a miracle worker had gained him quite the following. And while not everybody loved Jesus, nearly everybody had an opinion about him. And so as Jesus asks this question, I can picture Matthew saying, you know, I was in the, the marketplace the other day and I heard someone comparing you uh, saying you had the boldness of John the Baptist. At, at that point, a picture, you know, Andrew chiming in, and saying, well, that's, you know, that's not what I heard. I, last I knew you were being compared to the, the power of Elijah. James and John saying, no, the last, you know, you're both wrong. The, the last news report we got, people were saying that you had the, the, the compassionate heart, the spirit of Jeremiah. You know, it was clear that people weren't quite sure who Jesus was. But at the very least, they knew he was a prophet. And so Jesus takes it one step further. He moves from the theoretical to the personal, and he says, who do you say that I am? You, you guys who have surrounded your, me, uh, your lives, and have followed me for these past three years, who have been alongside of me in ministry, who do you say that I am after all this time? And Peter, being the, the spokesman for the disciples, steps up, and, and quite honestly, Peter is known for his big mouth. But sometimes it takes a big mouth to make a bold proclamation. So Peter says, you know, we know, Jesus, that you are the Messiah. You're the the anointed one, the one set apart by God, empowered by His Spirit. You're you're more than just a prophet. You're, You're prophet, priest, and king. But here's the thing. Even though Peter had the right title, he had the wrong concept of what it meant to be the Messiah. That's why Jesus warns them not to tell anyone about him. He says, don't speak of my identity until you understand my mission. I need to touch your eyes a second time. Verse 31, it says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I love Peter. I, I love him because he has such great intentions, but he has a problem. And his problem is that he often lacks that filter that stops what pops into your head come from coming straight out of your mouth. Peter is is the kind of guy who, uh, if his wife were a stay-at-home mom, would come home and say, you know, I I wish I could stay at home all day while my husband went to work. Peter is the kind of guy that goes up to a woman and says, oh, so when are you due? Only to hear, I'm not pregnant. Peter just has that kind of of mouth. He just comes flying out sometimes. And sometimes that leads to, to great and bold declarations. And other times that leads him to moments of rebuke. Or in case of this morning, to both. Peter follows up one of the greatest single declarations of Jesus' identity as the Messiah. It's so great, it's called the Great Confession. But when Jesus uses this opportunity to tell his disciples about who he really is and why he came, about his approaching death, this is just too much for Peter. And so he does the noble thing of, of standing next to his Messiah, next to his king, of boldly and proudly protecting him. And Peter takes Jesus aside and says, you know, Look, Jesus, I mean, buddy, you've got to work on your PR skills a little bit. I mean, you just can't be going around saying that you're going to die and the religious leaders are going to be the ones to kill you. I mean, if you're going to be the Messiah, you've got to start acting like the Messiah. And it's easy to, to kind of rag on Peter a bit. But if you were to put yourselves in Peter's sandals, you know, following the expectations of the day, Peter was exactly right. I mean, imagine it this way. Uh, You're the campaign manager for the next president in an upcoming presidential election. And you're leading into the primaries and everything is going great. Huge crowds turn out for the rallies and the speeches. And it's looking like, I mean, this president is, is the president that everyone's been looking for for a long time. I mean, he's got some bipartisan conversations going. This guy is so iconic that he's going to set a new paradigm for what the presidency looks like. He's going to be like the next George Washington. And so he's got this huge following, and, and the polls are all pointing in his favor. But all of a sudden, at one of the biggest debates of the year, he begins to say a few crazy things. He begins to kind of go off script. All of a sudden, he begins to, to say things like, you know, we're going to have higher taxes, And I'm going to raise the deficit, increase crime, more unemployment, national insecurity. As a president, as a presidential candidate, you don't promise a worse standard of living if you want to be elected. And as a Messiah, you don't predict your death. That's just not what Messiahs do. That's not what Messiahs are for. There were a lot of different views of what it meant to be the Messiah in Jesus' time, but all of them revolved around an earthly deliverance, an earthly kingdom. The Messiah would be this king, this warrior who rose up and wiped Israel's enemies off the map. Yet Jesus says, I didn't come to take up the crown, but rather to take up a cross. And Jesus, in his response, says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. And I read that and I was like, whoa, I mean, back it down, Jesus. The guy's just trying to stand up for you here. You're kind of harsh. But I think what Jesus is recognizing is that Peter is tempting him with the same essence of Satan's temptations in the wilderness. The kingdom without the cross, the glory without all of that messy gore. Peter is effectively telling Jesus, you don't need the cross. The cross is excruciating, and the cross is messy, and the cross is humiliating. God forbid you go to the cross. And even though our language might not be the same, all of us have done at one point or another what Peter did that day. All of us at some time in our lives have attempted to hand Jesus his job description. To say, okay, Jesus, you know, here's the deal. Here's how this is going to work. We're going to go into this a little quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It was just, you know, let's do this together and, and I'll be with you as long as you're with me. Or we read about Jesus and we think, well, I mean, Jesus might have said that, but he didn't really mean it that way. And that's, that's not the way my Jesus would do things. And so as we've tried to hand Jesus the parameters of what is acceptable behavior for him, often we've created a Jesus that doesn't look much like Jesus at all. A lot of us have kind of conjured up this genie, Jesus. You know, I go to church, and I, and I worship you, and I give you an offering, and, a, and in response, I want my wish of the greater promotion. Or I want my wish of you making my kids behave better. Or I want my wish of protection and, and you watching out for me. Other times, we've created kind of this patriot Jesus. And this was Peter's Jesus, the Jesus who had the strength of the nation as his primary focus. Some like to picture Jesus riding on this white steed, waving the America flag behind him, charging into battle against all who would malign the USA. Especially with elections approaching, everyone is quick to rally Jesus to their cause. If you were really a Christian, then you wouldn't vote this way or you would vote that way. And while for sure there are godly principles we can bring into the voting booth, If we think that Jesus' primary purpose is to assure America's continued success, then we have fatally missed his mission. Some are still stuck on the tender and mild Jesus, that seven-pound, six-ounce sleeping baby Jesus. And we sing songs, Silent night, holy night. We get to... Holy infant so tender and mild. Listen, I'm not here to ruin anyone's Christmas, but Jesus got out of the manger. I mean, we've got to stop talking about Jesus' tender mild like he's a rack of ribs, people. I mean, what about Jesus, what about mild describes a Jesus who, who didn't hesitate to challenge the hypocrisies of the religious leaders of his day? I mean, what about Mile describes a Jesus who in one sermon whipped people into such a frenzy they wanted to stone him to death right then and there? But I mean, what about why Mile describes Jesus who through righteous anger overturned tables and chased money changers out of the temple with a whip because of their exploitation? What about Mile describes a Jesus who was ultimately marked for death because he was viewed as a menace to society and an enemy of the state? I mean, certainly Jesus was selfless and humble, but we should never mistake him for mild. And so many of us try to to follow a Jesus of our own design that we actually miss out on what he truly wants to do in us. Verse 34 says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is what I want you to understand this morning. Knowing who Jesus is, is vitally important. Because as Jesus defines messiahship, he's also describing discipleship. As Jesus defines Messiahship, he's also describing discipleship. Mark's message going into the second half of this book isn't just that Jesus is headed for the cross, but that he's taking us with him. Jesus will suffer, and so will those who follow him. Will you follow Jesus even if you find out that he's not going where you thought he would? Will you follow Jesus even if your life doesn't get better and everything doesn't fall into place? Will you follow Jesus even if it means you lose everything, your life included? And the implications of what this looks like will be different for every one of us. I mean, what does it look like for a 30-year-old, middle-class, white, male, 21st century American Christian to take up my cross? What does it look like for an 85-year-old widowed retiree to take up her cross? What does it look like for a 44-year-old married father of three to take up his cross? The implications of taking up our cross will look different depending on how we live our lives, but it will require the same thing of all of us, that we lay it all down at the foot of the cross. You see, this is one of Jesus' most shocking statements of all time but often we trivialize it by applying it to the mundane. You know, I've, I've just got a terrible job, you know, but it's just my cross to bear. Or I've struggled with my weight my whole life, but it's just my cross to bear. But the cross is not a problem that you carry with you. The cross is reserved for revolutionaries and low-class government insurrectionists and not only revolutionaries, but failed revolutionaries. The cross was meant to prolong death as long as possible, inflicting the most pain and the most humiliation on display for all to see until the victim finally died. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to know me and understand me and why I'm here and who I am and why I've come, join the revolution. But in the eyes of the world, the revolution will fail and you will be executed and tortured and humiliated, and put on display. Of course, we know, by virtue of being here this morning, that the revolution didn't fail. But to those looking on, following Jesus might not always look like the good life. What does it look like to live as crucified people? When we live as crucified people, our desires become secondary to our obedience. When we live as crucified people, our holiness overrides our happiness. When we live as crucified people, what we own doesn't own us. And when we live as crucified people, our wallets aren't ours, our, our sexuality isn't ours, our families aren't ours, our lives aren't ours. When we live as crucified people, we can confidently affirm Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus tells us that following him might not mean comfort or protection or a happy ending. In fact, it might, and by his estimation will, lead us to shame and humiliation and death. But that, of course, is not the end of the story because our march of death is met with the promise of life. Jesus doesn't just promise us his death, he also promises us his resurrection into new and lasting and eternal and abundant and fulfilled life. The message of this morning, of what it means to know Jesus, is that God has a plan. That God knows what he's doing, even when the plan might not make sense to us. And when we have the confidence that Jesus is who He says He is, Messiah and King and Son of the Living God, we don't have to fear that plan or try to protect Him from it. God has a plan, but it might not be our plan. God's plan for our lives is a complete and unconditional surrender of who we are and what we have planned. And we might know who Jesus is, but we can never know and never be who He wants us to be if our proclamation of Him as the gentle, fun-loving, good-life-bringing, easy Messiah gets in the way of His purposes for us. God has a plan, and the world wants to thwart it. Because however backwards it might seem, we have the ultimate victory in death that the greatest thing the world can do to thwart God's plan is to tempt us into believing that we can come to Jesus without first bringing our cross along with us. But while we are promised death that the world does not understand, we are also promised life that without Jesus, the world will never experience. And so it is our mission to be true to who Jesus is and why he came as we lead the world to understand that life as well. This morning, as we come to this time of invitation, we want to help you to experience the life that Jesus has for you. We want you to come to a place where you can say, I'm following you, Jesus, with a cross on my back and my life in your hands. And if we can help you in that decision this morning, I'll be up front. Our response team is going to come forward. Some of our elders will be in the back. And we'd love to pray with you and talk with you about what it looks like to know Jesus and to follow him. Ultimately, we want to be a church that people look and say, Countryside Christian Church is a crucified church. Countryside Christian Church is full of people who have laid down their lives at the foot of the cross and have become sacrificial in seeking the world for Jesus. Because ultimately, the goal of this message isn't just to know Jesus, but that as we know him, we'll be transformed to look more like him. Would you please pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning, simply asking you to reveal Jesus to us in a greater way. And God, we know that the greatest revelation we have of Jesus is through your word. And so help us to study your word to know your word, and in so knowing it, to know Jesus. To know who he is and why he came and what it requires from us as his followers. God, I pray that as we seek to know Jesus and look like him, we would understand the mission that he has. That he didn't come to, to put his people on the map in this great earthly kingdom, but rather to raise up a kingdom of ambassadors who tell the world about him and what it looks like to have victory even in death. God, I pray that we would be people who follow after you with the cross on our back, to have sacrificed everything to know you and to be more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.